Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The The Money Money Cafe. Um, Well, James, you keep a closer eye on results than I do. Um, What's your overall uh, impression so far? It's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, Some, uh, I think investors have welcomed the view or or the idea that retailers and the consumer are holding their own. They're, They're relatively resilient. They're not shooting the lights out. But they're, the investors are looking ahead till the end of 2024 into 2025 when we get stage three tax cuts and rate cuts and, hey, presto, everything will be better. So what, what about the CEOs? What are they like? I think they're cautiously optimistic. They're, they're not seeing any great deterioration in uh, business conditions. It's softer, but it's not terribly softer. Um they're a little bit cautious about what's coming. Matt Common is a bit cautious about the, the Commonwealth Bank chief executive. You know, he's he still hasn't pushed through all of that last interest rate rise in November. And so people are still got to digest that. He had to give it to depositors, didn't he? He did, yep. Um, there's so a lot of competition for deposits. Yeah. Um, but it's it just – there's a bit of a lag with uh, mortgage holders – and if you look at the, the numbers that uh, CBA presented about who's spending and how they're spending, middle Australia, people aged under 55, are really doing it tough. But they're not cracking. You know, there's no great pickup in home loan arrears. They're still spending a bit. Um, so it's just a reminder, I think, we still haven't seen the lagged effects of these interest rate hikes yet. And maybe we'll get lucky and the interest rate cuts will arrive and you know, that blow will be softened. But it's still, that pressure's sort of still building, I think. One of the interesting things in their presentation, I thought, was he, he, he compared countries' pass-through yeah. of interest rates. Yes. And Australia is not that high. Oh, no, I think their point was, um, yes, well, their part, his point was that pass-through of deposit rates, Australia is leading the pack. Yeah. Australian banks have no, passed through No, I meant mortgage more. rates. Mortgage rates, we're middle of the rung. We've passed yeah. through 85% of uh, what we could have passed through. So that says to me, mortgage competition is alive and well. Um, and you can see that in the bank's profits. Which is, I suppose, because of brokers, is it? Because of brokers, yeah. Because different banks are trying to do different things at the moment. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a very competitive mortgage sector here. I mean, the, com- the obvious comparison in that graph was with Canada, which is a very similar sort of economy to Australia. Their banks have passed on 116% of the interest rate rises. So they have gone, right, we're going to take some profits here on top of whacking you with these interest rate rises. So Commons... So it does, that does tend to argue that this is not necessarily a cartel. Oh, no. I, yeah. I mean, these these banks, the big banks are actually competing then, aren't oh, they? Oh, yeah, I, I think they are. I mean, uh, and you can see it in their profitability. Their, their, their margins are have come down and there was a good another good graph in the CBA thing. Their ROEs are nothing like what they were 10 years ago. Hmm. You know, I think in the, in the last decade, the, the amount return, of- Return on equity. Yeah, return is. on equity, sorry. The, in the last decade, the amount of capital- that a bank has had to hold has gone up a thousand percent, I think it was, and but their profits gone up eighteen percent. So 
banks are bigger, they're safer and less profitable than they were a decade ago. But look, they're big targets. No one's going to feel sorry for CBA making $5 billion in the half year. But the, other, the flip side of that is 52% of us have CBA shares one way or another. So <laughs> don't complain too much. So speaking of big targets, um, Telstra's result this morning, have you had a look at that? Oh, very quickly, just, uh, just now, 3% increase in underlying profit. The mobiles business is doing really well. Pretty steady as she goes. I mean, Telstra's been had it been a bit of a roller coaster in the last decade as they've gone through this NBN um, change, shift, transformation. Um, but in the, at the same time, mobile's just taken over yeah, the business yeah. of telecommunications entirely, right? Totally. And and look, they do a good and, job. I suppose that it's fair to say that the NBN, obviously everyone uses it, but... Um, it's not a high-margin business. It's not a high-margin business, no, no. Uh, and I think um, Telstra's benefiting at the moment. The, the, things are pretty rational in the telco business. It's not like in the banks where they're – the banking sector where they're cutting each other's throat. They're pushing through – everyone's pushing through price rises in the telco business, usually based on CPI. Um there's no aggressive pricing. Will that change? Optus obviously had that big outage. They will have lost some ground. Does a new Optus CEO, whoever that is, when they get appointed, come in and say, right, we're going after market share here? Don't know. Not sure. Not sure Singtel, which owns Optus, would say, yeah, please. We've, <laughs> we've had a shocking couple of years. Will you now come and destroy our margins? That sounds great. So I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a pretty steady-as-she-goes story at at Telstra. They're pretty well positioned, as you say, for this mobile thing and AI thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other big news of the week, I guess, was well, for the markets was US inflation. Yeah. Which was uh, 3.1% for the year to January, down from December, 3.4%, but uh, higher than... I mean, look, so the, the, the forecast, the consensus forecast was 2.9%. Um, so 3.1% a bit above that. Everyone went, oh, my God, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's come on. It's and it's January like, where the numbers hardly... are always a bit funny. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, Jesus, it's amazing. The market is so flighty. Yeah. I think this is, that's the point. I mean, the market's bounced back on Thursday morning after going down on Wednesday night. So, But I, I think that's the point. We've seen this bull market, record highs, some crazy share prices out there, but this doesn't feel like a bull market where everyone's running around with their chest puffed out saying, go, 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 how good's this? This feels like a bull market where everyone's going, really? Uh, like, I'm happy to take the superannuation fund gains and I'm happy my portfolio looks good, but I don't believe this. This yeah. doesn't feel right. And I think that's why you're seeing these flighty reactions because people say, yeah, I, 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 thought, I thought inflation would be sticky, and that's a data point that says it. Well, it was interesting just on Australia, back to Matt Common, he's now saying maybe rates in Australian interest <laughs> rates won't be cut until next year. Yes. Which which I think is absolutely on the money. I do too. I do too. But it's interesting, his economists in his bank saying three cuts this year. Yeah, but before the inflation, the American economists were all saying, oh, you know, rates will be cut in you know May, maybe even March. Yeah. You know, like, and now they're saying, oh, it won't be this till the second half. Yeah. Um, so I think everyone did get ahead of themselves with, with rate cut projections. And the market 
in particular the futures market did too. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think that um, uh, the the rate cut proje- projections will start being pushed out again. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I remember a guy called John Wood. It used to be the strategist at Credit Suisse for Asia. He once said to me that investor sentiment's like a hold, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You can it, it always keeps popping up, and I think that's what we're seeing. You know, investors want the rate cut story to be true, and so they keep they're going to keep believing in it until they're absolutely sure it's not true. So. That's a fantastic analogy. It's good, isn't it? It's really good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's true. The, the other interesting news this week, um, Alan, out of profit season, was the departure of a guy called Nick O'Kane from Macquarie. Um, now, Nick's, you wouldn't know Nick if you saw him in the street, and that's the way he likes it, but he was the guy who out-earned his CEO, Shamara Wickrenamica, for three years running. Last year, he took home $58 million in pay and shares, so he's the head of, he was the head of their global commodities business, which is a fascinating business. That so just, what, what does it do? Just trades commodities? No, it does everything in commodities. So if you've got some sort of – you need to get – you're a US utility that needs to sort out your, your how to get your gas supplies, you know, for next year, They Macquarie can help you with that. But they can also help you if you get caught short with gas. They move molecules around and they do transport, they do logistics, they do storage. If you're a pension fund – Super fund, and you want a basket of commodities, but you don't want to actually buy the commodities. This business will help you with that. It's it's a fascinating. I describe it as a problem solving business, and there's all these little problems, and these guys take the worry away and clip the ticket. It's fascinating business, right? And obviously they make tons of money, and so yeah. does. Mr. O'Kane. And they make tons of money. They make tons of money all the time, but they particularly make tons of money when things go wrong in markets like Russia invades Ukraine and everyone gets worried about energy. Volatility spikes and these guys are like, oh, we can help you manage that volatility. Here's some hedges. Here's some risk management tools. And so when, when, you know, when the world is in uh, a bit of chaos, this business really thrives. So, so why do you leave? Well, I, I think... He's got a new gig. We don't know what that is, whether he's starting something or moving to somewhere else. And I guess he's been at Macquarie for 28 years. That's How a fair stint. Oh, he'd be early 50s, I would have said. Right. So, and look, he'll be he'll – be, He probably doesn't have to work anymore. Oh, I don't think if so. If he doesn't want to. He's got enough Macquarie shares, he could probably live on the dividends pretty comfortably. So, But look, you know, he's a very smart guy, interesting guy. And, yeah, it, it, Macquarie's a f- – Really fascinating business. It sort of shape shifts in this really clever way. The transition to Shimara uh, has been very smooth. Oh hasn't yeah, it? yep, yep. Uh, they're, they're 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 very well run. It's it can feel like a black box even to me, and I look at it pretty closely. Um, but it's um, the way they just find the next little thing is very clever. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I saw the piece. Uh, there was a story the other day how they're going after retail mortgages yeah. in Australia. Yeah, and they've got a guy who's running their their retail business, and I presume they're doing it through brokers. Yes, um, they are. Totally, they have no branches. But, yeah, um, but I mean that 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 that's a great example. That thing's gone from nothing to over five percent of the mortgage market. And, you know, as you would know when you talk to another bank CEO, it's Macquarie's become the sort of 
bank the bank that other banks sort of hate because these guys are so good at disrupting the market. The technology is good. They're good at taking the best customers. So they're, they're just – they're great disruptors. They find the little weak spots and they, they profit from them. Speaking of disruptors, Bitcoin's gone to 50,000 US this week. Yeah. Is this the ETF buying, do you think? Well, that's what everyone says. Yeah. It seems to be. I mean, the, they, the, the ETFs – when they announced the ETFs, there was a bit of um, uh, buy on the fact, sell on the rumour about it. Everyone had been buying Bitcoin yeah. ahead of the ETFs. They announced that it was happening. Bitcoin went down. But now this, the ETFs do seem to be collecting up yeah. um, buyers or you know potential owners who, who don't want to have a digital wallet and just want to buy an ETF yeah. to do yeah. it. And it just seemed to be expanding demand, as was expected. Yes, and it's demand for Bitcoin as a mainly as an investment tool, isn't it? Of speculation and something to hedge against other asset classes. And it's, there's no great use case for Bitcoin. So, uh, oh it, no, no, no. It's, and I think it's simply, it, in fact, I think the, bit, the the use cases have diminished more recently. You know, there was talk about you know Bitcoin to buy a pizza or a house or whatever it is. That that's all gone. Now. I, I sat down with my graphics person at the ABC last last night. Right. As I always do, to just go through the graphs. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a graph of um, Bitcoin. Yep. And she says to me, "Have you bought any yet?" <laughs> and I said, "No." Nah. She says, "Oh, I have." Right. And and I said, "Oh yeah, what you pay?" Uh, she says, four thousand dollars per Bitcoin. So she bought wow. a little while ago, and wow. she's so happy. Yeah. She says, "This is." She says, "I love it." You know, she says, I just love it. Well, it's life-changing money, isn't it? Uh, and um, she says, it's the future. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people think it is the future. But yeah. I'm not quite, I mean, I, I don't think it's the future of money. I'm not no. quite sure what it's the future of. Yeah, I mean, I can see how it's going to help her future <laughs> when she needs to sell it. She's going to have lots of future I, I, I didn't she didn't tell me how many she bought yeah well even one would be great but um yeah I don't I mean we're t- we still hear about central bank digital currencies but that sort of de- no, that's a different thing that's a defeat so it's, it is a, a different thing it, it's, it's entirely it's not what thing. Bitcoin's about so I just don't yeah I'm with you I'm not sure maybe it will become clear later but I'm well, not sure a, what Bitcoin's used for it's a, well it's used for a store of value yeah yeah that's it yeah um I mean, Ethereum is a different thing, and that is useful as a um, smart contract, and people are using it as the basis for all sorts of digital businesses. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's not going away, so that's for sure. Um, just briefly, I, I kind of um, been talking to Ross Garno and Rod Sims, yeah. and they had their big announcement yesterday at the National Press Club. They've released their... Paper. Yep. They've been working on for a while about how to transition the economy from to renewable energy, and they want to in- introduce a carbon tax. Yes. Um, uh, that'll raise a hundred billion dollars. They want to set the carbon tax at the same rate as the EU emissions trading scheme price, which is roughly ninety dollars a ton, which is a big price. Mm. It's about um, almost three times as much as our current. Uh, price of Accu's Australian carbon credit units in Australia. Um, so uh, yeah, it's interesting. They said they're, they're saying that you know we know that the 
politicians are all going to say we're not going to do it, but um, they're going to keep going until someone listens to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got to have – great to see someone putting up solutions – you know, most things in Australia, we're really good at talking about the problems and defining them. But here's a solution. I think I think it's I think good on them for for raising it and prosecuting it and talking about it in an open way. And the press club briefing. I mean, they've got a fairly solid idea, but I didn't get the sense they were sort of saying, you know, we've completely solved this. There's details to be worked through and worked out. So, yeah, that's right. No, they've worked a lot of it out. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. A little way to go. Yeah. Just before we go on to the questions, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Share Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. Designed for investors seeking international diversification and Australian companies with superior financial metrics. Invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au. First question from Bruce. He says, I see that AFIC has just announced an on-market buyback of up to 123 million shares or 10% of the total. And I noticed that at the exact time they, they announced this, the share price immediately dropped by 1%. As an AFIC shareholder, I'm confused why the market reacted in this way. Aren't buybacks generally positive for both the company and shareholders alike, or am I missing something? Well, first, <laughs> yes, you are missing something. The first 1% is not much of a move, so don't no. worry about that. And secondly... Um, AFIC shares are selling at a massive premium to NTA. Yes. And yep. so, of course, the shares are going to go down if they buy them back because they're buying, they're paying too much for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem for AFIC. You know, their ideal would be they, they trade just below FTA. You know, not, not too far below, but just below. But, uh, but the, the, um, that's right, but they have always traded at they a have. premium. Yep. Seven, uh, and the current premium is 17%. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know... Yeah, it's so. <laughs> it's it's hard to make the but argument, it, but but the, it doesn't. Have, don't you think that means they shouldn't buy back? It's a good question. I hadn't thought about that actually. Yeah, I don't know why they're doing it. Actually, what, why why would you spend that money overpaying for their own shares rather than buy something else that's cheap? I Is mean, they'd some... be even better off buying. You know, there's like just about every other uh, listed investment company is selling at a discount. Yeah. They'd be better off buying someone else. else's shares. Someone else's, oh, that, some other investment company shares. That's cheap. That's I mean, an extraordinarily unaffic thing to do, I would say, Alan. Yeah, of course. But um, still. Maybe there's tax reasons that they. It, it's better to do the buyback than other options. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, Peter was reading something about how you could eventually build. The story's called uh, the one person billion dollar company where you could eventually build a big company using AI to do a lot of the jobs. He says, I guess revenue employee will go up significant revenue per employee will go up significantly with AI doing a lot more of the work. So do you think wages will also rise per employee who manages to keep their jobs or will it be offset by the rise in unemployment? So do you want to get into the the other questions about yeah, slavery sure, at yeah. the same time? <laughs> yep, yep. Go on, summarise them. We'll talk, well, we'll talk about this issue, right? Al- Alan's had a lot of feedback from people who believe he's worried about uh, domestic AI slaves becoming part of our um, uh, ha- homes and lives. Um, and a, a, a number of correspondents, Alan, have pointed out, we already have domestic slaves. So we just call them the dishwasher or the washing machine or whatever it is. 
So uh, and they they think you're becoming uh, too caring about a bunch of metal and electrons. That's a good summary, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they think you're being silly. I think. Well, uh, no, well, it's, it's a misunderstanding. <laughs> I'm not worried about them. I don't. I'm not saying that it's going to be. T- it's bad for them. I mean, I'm just pointing out that we're possibly entering uh, a new era of slavery, which, uh, you know, is possibly more, in fact, uh, ethical than the previous one. <laughs> You'd hope so. Because <laughs> be the previous one, <laughs> the previous one was all about, you know, actual human slaves and, you know, that, that ended and now we're going to have machine slaves. And yes, it's true, we've got dishwashers um, and we've even got robot vacuum cleaners, had them for a while. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think, I do think, it's a it's a gradual process where these machines are going to become more and more human like and going to do more and more human jobs. Yes, um, and I think and you're using the idea of slavery to be a bit evocative to say this isn't like the dumb washing machine in the corner. This will be a change to the way we live. Absolutely, and and the thing is, well, uh, I mean, uh, we're going to be talking to these machines. They're going to be talking back to us. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I am starting to have conversations with AI myself. Mm. It's kind of um, interesting. Yeah, and um, you know, the the car now, you, you just tell the car to ring somebody. You in the car, you say, "Ring James Thompson," <laughs> or and navigate me to this place. Yeah, and it says, "Yeah, sure." No worries, or whatever. Um, so look, uh, and as for uh, uh, what, but, but we what should assure people, you're not getting misty-eyed about no, um, no, no, uh, um, robots of any type. But I, I do think that the question of what it does to work and profits and productivity and how that extra productivity is going to be shared, I think, is a really interesting one. Which is the one, the question that Peter is yeah. raising. Yeah. Um, and so, will wages? Per employee rise, um, because I mean, because the thing is that the, um, Nvidia's price, share price, mm. and the value of Nvidia. I saw something this morning saying that Nvidia is now worth more than Canada's GDP. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, what that's about is the idea that um, a whole lot of companies are going to buy Nvidia chips or going to use do AI in order to replace human beings. Right. That's what it's about. Yeah. AI is a fundamentally a product um, uh, that companies are developing in order to replace human beings. So if that's correct, if NVIDIA's price is uh, reasonable, they're going to replace a whole lot of human beings. Yes. Um, yep. So therefore, so the question is, how, what's going to happen to the human beings that get replaced? Yes. Um, and, and how are they going to live? So, uh, um, what are they going to do? So, uh, uh, because you know, so there's a lot of people saying, well, that means this has to be universal basic income, yeah. right? Yeah. So everyone has to get paid, uh, even though they're not working. Yeah. So how does that get funded? Yeah. Right. And the answer, presumably, for those who think that to the next step, through to the next step, is well, the the companies have to be taxed more, or at least. They'll be making so much money, NVIDIA and, you know, um, the rest of these companies, Microsoft and so on, will mm. be making so much money that the taxes will just pour in, um, except that they're based in the Cook Islands or wherever they are. <laughs> they're not going to be paying tax. Yeah, 
Yeah. Right? Well, so, presumably all the local companies are making more money by deploying this AI, though, too. Presumably, that's right. Yeah. Because they're using slaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's circular, this. Uh, yeah. I, I am not convinced on – I'm not convinced on any how any of this plays out. I, I think it's – Well, somebody else is saying – up in the air. Some of our, one of our other questioners is saying that AI is just – they're doing some, doing stuff that not quite very – not very well. Yes, yes. What, do you want to go straight to that question? Yeah, Where let's is do that? it. That question is from Miles, who says, Regarding last week's breathless hype for AI and robotics, the value proposition of AI is that it does a slightly crap job, but also does it very cheaply. This means AI is only viable in very constrained domains where risk can be designed out, or more general domains where the bar for quality or safety is very low. Your home or your car presumably aren't included in this. This limitation is built into the methodology. You get the most likely response given the training data and all the contained biases, not the best response. My question is, assuming AI can't improve much on current benchmarks in real-world conditions, where does that leave markets? Are we out of ideas for improving productivity? Would any big players get sunk? Could it open the tech landscape or will it be lead to further consolidation? Bonus point, point to where in Microsoft's uh, fourth quarter earnings statements, they generated significant revenue from AI. All right, I'm going to take the bonus point, Alan. Okay, go. Because it wasn't in the earnings statements, but if you listen to the call, Satya Nadella, the CEO, said in the Azure cloud business, about $3 billion of revenue came from companies requiring more computing power, cloud computing power to run AI models. So it is happening. And in the next few quarters, they'll start selling these what they call co-pilots, the AI robots that you you know you have in Microsoft Office or whatever it is. So. I noticed some, some, something related to that this morning. Um, uh, Iris Energy, which is the Australian company that that mines bitcoins, yeah. uh, said it's bought a whole lot of Nvidia chips so that it can uh, continue to grow its AI cloud business. So I mean, people are doing AI. As a as a kind of a service, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Iris is providing companies with AI externally, yeah. just to help them. It's, it's got the uh, it's got the Nvidia chips itself, so the companies don't have to actually buy Nvidia chips themselves. Yeah, um, but, but just to come back to Miles' thing, I mean, it, it is a good question. Does AI improve enough to that it can take out someone's job? And and, and this is the bit I'm struggling with, like. I, I can see it for some jobs, but, you know, we've had call centre chatbots and that sort of thing for a while, and eventually you don't get the answers you want and you have to go to a human. So, yes, it might reduce labour in some areas, but does that reduce the need for people or, or do the people move to higher duties that the AI, in Miles's point, isn't sort of high quality enough to figure out? Look, I'm thinking that a few years after the motor car was invented, they were probably saying, no, no, this is not going to – Yeah, the, These things are hopeless. They're not going to replace horses. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I don't know. I mean, because they were hopeless to begin with, weren't yeah. they? I mean, they didn't – they had to – you know, they had, people had to walk in front of them with a red lantern saying, you know, watch out, motor car coming. <laughs> and, and they were going at walking pace. Yeah, right? true, true. So, uh, look, I, and it took a while. And eventually, it <laughs> yeah. But I think Miles is, makes a good point. It, it, it's this is all we're all figuring this out. 
there's no guarantee that today's winners are going to be tomorrow's winners. I think of NVIDIA is a really good example. Like this thing is hugely valued. Uh, it's going to make some very large profits. Do we seriously think there's not someone else out there thinking, hey, that looks like a pretty good business, this chip making lark. I'm going to get into that and undercut them. Well, I don't know why it hasn't happened already. I well, mean, I come, think it'll start How come everyone's having to buy NVIDIA chips to do AI? I, I think it's amazing. I, I think they've got the first mover advantage at the moment. But, but yeah, the, the AI story is we're figuring all this out. It's a bit like work from home. We're, it's going to be five or ten years before we know the full consequences. But it's going to be fascinating. Uh, George says, I hate the term sophisticated investors. It simply boosts the ego of simple people who happen to come to an, into inherited money. Agree with the proposed 4.5 uh, million value, but the home should be excluded. There is also the 250,000 income test, which might be a better guide as to one's capacity to understand. The other issue, really sophisticated investors, is they are not classified as retail investors and therefore not covered by the investment advisor's PI insurance. The winners are the advisors who reduce their PI insurance premiums, professional indemnity insurance, that is. Your thoughts, please. Well, I think uh, you weren't in on this. Stephen and I discussed it last week, I think, about um, how the, uh, the dollar value, whether it's assets or income, isn't a very good measure of whether anyone's sophisticated or not. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of rich idiots out there. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, maybe there's yeah. a better way. There should be some kind of simple test that, the people do in order to be a sophisticated investor. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, I think the monetary tests are reasonable. Um, I, I think George is kidding himself. He thinks advisors are winning in any great way in any shape or form at the moment. I think being an advisor is a pretty tough business. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure sophisticated investing – tag is an ego boost for anyone. I'm not sure anyone's walking around going, hey, I'm a sophisticated investor. No, that's right. I don't right. think that works at the uh, as a I, In fact, it's a, it's a, in some ways, it's a bit of a negative because if you're labelled, if you are sophisticated, you get less protection. Yeah, exactly, as George says. You, you yeah. know, you get fewer protections. But on the other hand, you do get um, you get offered more stuff. Yes, I and think. presumably you can afford better advisors to protect you or guide you. Well, that's the idea. Yeah. Um, so, look, I mean, I think – We'd be aware of the unintended consequences. The venture capital sector has raised those about people being less able to invest in venture businesses. Um, so uh, the government's working through this. I think that's a pretty reasonable process. David says, The media, which largely remains unaccountable for its views, collectively continues to criticise the RBA for its processes and decisions. I know it's easy to sling mud from the cheap seats, Alan, <laughs> yet the RBA seems to have engineered in Australia what has been described as immaculate disinflation. Yet listening to the talking heads, you wouldn't know the RBA has done a pretty good job. Is it, isn't it? it time for the commentariat, Alan, to recognise that although times are tough, in the mortgage belt, the economy has not tanked and inflation is returning to target. The economy is not just the mortgage belt. Yeah, Alan, when are you going to fess up that Phil Lowe was right. What about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, but uh, okay. I've given the the RBA credit for you know pulling off. If they if, if there's a soft landing, which there looks like there is, then that, that's right. That's to their credit. They've done it. That's true. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I think the RBA has rightly criticised, Phil Lowe has rightly criticised for saying that interest rates wouldn't change for three years yes. or until 2024. Yep. Uh, uh, I think he kind of, let's just say he worded that wrongly. Yeah, um, and fessed up to it, which is fine. And uh, note that Michelle Bullock is avoiding uh, that kind of thing like the plague now. Yeah. Well, She's uh, saying anything yeah. could happen. Yes. Uh, and the removal of forward guidance is what is really important thing she's done. But, uh, Alan, I think David's declaring victory much earlier than Michelle Bullock would here. Like, wh- what if we don't get rate cuts? Hypothetically, what if we don't get rate cuts till 2026? I mean, if you look at the RBA's own forecasts, inflation will not be back will not be back at the midpoint of the target band till beyond June 2026. In fact, the RBA hasn't even predicted when it will get back to that point, and that is their new mandate. It has to be at the midpoint. So there's a lot that can happen in the next two years. Maybe the economy slows really quickly, or maybe it inflation proves really sticky, and we'll all be saying, well, why didn't why did Phil Lowe wait an extra three months to start raising interest rates and then only take them up to... Um, 4.35%, which is well b- well below the Fed. So, I, yeah, yeah. you know, we, this, 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 is, this is not over. This the other done. thing is I would say that um, uh, David ought to have a look at the RBA review final report because a lot of the criticism of the, of the Reserve Bank that journalists are making uh, comes out of that. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, it's couched in official kind of language. It isn't direct journalistic language in the RBA, RBA review, as you'd expect, but it is absolutely scathing. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that review final report is incredibly, I reckon, uh, critical of the RBA's processes, of the RBA board, of, of the RBA executive led by Phil Lowe uh, and his predecessors snowing the board. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of that criticism comes from that report. I'd come back to that Matt Common point that the interest rates have not been fully passed on to mortgage holders yet. It's still, that process is still underway. So, you know, it may be that those rate rises eventually do tank the economy. I don't know yet. And so we've got to hold judgment. Anonymous says, I don't know why he's anonymous. Anyway, capital gains are inherited, but capital losses are not. I see too many elderly shareholders ignoring their losses and concentrating on the shares that go up and their fracking credits. So Anonymous presumably is a financial advisor. Maybe. Um, but And we reckon he's probably – he must have a really different Christian name because it, otherwise – because if he tells his Christian, his <laughs> he's Christian name, he'll be identifiable. <laughs> Education on selling, taking a gain and offsetting a loss is lacking. The gain is inherited by offspring who are usually working in a higher tax bracket with no loss to offset against. So uh, what he seems to be saying is everyone should um, take their gains and offset their losses before they die. Yeah. And I, I actually don't think he's an advisor. I think he's a uh, person who's experienced this. He might have been passed on some big capital gains oh, I see. from a parent who's uh, passed away. A big Oh, I see. He's got to tax. He's got to cop the losses. He's got to cap the taxes. The, he's got to cap the t- got to cop the taxes on the capital gains. This is a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it like this. Um, because, you know, most people would be thrilled to inherit a parcel of uh, CSL shares bought at the float, but it's true. When you come to sell them, you're going to have a big tax bill. And if you're a 
in, in the highest earning bracket, that tax bill is going to be pretty hefty. So I can't see the problem, to be honest. I mean, well, I guess if you know, you make a big capital gain, fine, that's great, good yeah. for you, well done. But I guess it would be better if your elderly parent took the capital gain against their minimal income and 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 offset it against capital losses while they have the chance. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, and and he makes a good point about education about when to take a gain and offsetting a loss. So pass on cash. The problem I... So, <laughs> yeah, pass me cash would be good. The, the problem I see is um, you don't quite know when you're going to die, so when's the best time to do this? When's the best time to settle up before you have to settle up with the greater market in the sky? Yeah, I like that you don't quite know when you're going to die. <laughs> so, and... and, and Anonymous does make the point you can inv- reinvest, but then you sort of start the problem again. So I hadn't thought of it like that, but it's an interesting idea. Justin says, I have a question about small Australian banks. Do small banks such as my state stand a chance against the big banks, short, mid or long term, or are they only worth investing in as potential takeover targets? Interesting question. Uh, I don't think they're going to get taken over because the, the banks won't, the big banks won't nope. be allowed to buy them. Nope. Um, will they... Will they ever make? Will they ever stand a chance against the big banks? Nope. And the reason is scams. It is going to be increasing. The, the, you look at the bank results; they are spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to defend uh, their account holders from scams. Their account holders give them no credit for this. They see it just as part of doing business. Why wouldn't you? You protect me from robbers at the branch. Protect me from online robbers, please. Fair enough. Uh, the cost of doing this is going to be increasingly difficult for small banks to wear on top of the other regulatory burdens and other cost pressures. Mortgage uh, markets are going to get more intensely competitive. I think we are going to have a real issue with some small Australian banks. It's that Their lives are hard already and will get a lot harder. That's very interesting. Yep. I hadn't thought of that scams thing. I mean, yeah. I, NAB and the other banks have, have, have announced uh, – uh, really gobsmacking numbers of uh, hack attempts yep. per day, like millions and millions per day of hack attempts. Yeah, the, the big banks score. Uh, the big banks would spend more just on protecting from scams than the small banks would have in their combined IT budgets for everything. Huh. It's 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 it is a massive problem. It's a massive problem. Um. I think this is a, Joanna says, thank you for your podcast. Um, I, I listened to the RBA Governor Michelle Bullock's press conference. I think she said that RBA won't cut rates until the inflation is at mid 2 to 3%. Looking at the RBA forecast, the inflation rates are above 2.5% for 2024 and 2025. Does this mean that RBA are not forecasting rate cuts in these two years? They have forecast so many uh, economic data. Why don't they forecast the cash rate as well? I think that's a very good question, Joanna. I think we should hear what their forecast for the <laughs> cash rate is because we find out what the Federal Reserve's forecasts for the cash rate are. Oh, the, the, we find out what their assumptions are, where they think it might go. No, no. The, each, each, uh, seven, all forecasts. the 17 members of the FOMC. They're projections, the, not forecasts. Projections. No, no, they are projections. Well, that's the, right. well, the RBA what, does have assumptions. That's semantics. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, we Ford guidance provided like Joanna would like, and like Phil Lowe famously provided a few years ago. Ford guidance isn't the way that 
central banks have always operated. Usually they say, well, guess what? Every meeting we're going to look at the data and figure out what should happen because we don't know what's what could, things change. No, but but you you must admit the the FOMC dot plot mm. provides a, guidance a, projections projections. That's yeah. what I'm saying. But we don't even get that. We do. The the, the 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 RBA forecast given out last week has an assumption that there'll be two rate cuts. That's because they just take it from the futures market. Well, That's not theirs. Well, they say that these assumptions are based on what the futures market says. This is not based on their opinion at all. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Um, I don't. I don't. I. I, I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how helpful that is. I, I think. I think it's unhelpful to the credibility of the of the central bank. They get they exactly what happened to Phil Lowe ha- will happen constantly. No, no, it was kind of a different thing, but yeah, I, yeah, it's true. That's right. I mean, the for- I think the interesting thing about forward guidance is it was introduced by Ben Bernanke as a way of uh, enhancing the impact of the yes. things they were doing. Right. Yes. So they so they they give an interest rate cut, but it's, they kind of want to enhance the value of that or the impact of it by saying, and we think. Also, that that's you know that that we're biased towards cutting some more. Yeah. So the forward guidance is is very generalised. It isn't specific like Phil Lowe was doing. Forward guidance is meant to be about saying we think we're more likely to cut in future than increase or yes. the other way around. Yeah. So it's a sort of a, a bias thing rather than a specific sure forecast as Phil Lowe's was. But but the the, the 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 group that sets the Fed's fund rates is like twelve Michelle Bullocks. The group that sets our rates is one Michelle Bullock and a bunch of directors, board members yeah, from that's right. taken from across the economy. So which is going to change from July the first. True to yeah. be a, a board of uh, Michelle Bullocks of all apparently more more have, Michelle Bullocks. Well, yeah. we're going to be macroeconomists. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, and we don't know who they are yet. Um, apparently they're going to be experts in line with the RBA Review's recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other question, Joanna, just to, <laughs> just to finish up with, Joanna says, do you think the Australian and US stock markets are overvalued at the moment? Uh, well, I was speaking for myself, wouldn't have a clue. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was reading this morning um, our, our, our great friend from Macquarie, Victor Schwetz, who made the point that I think the NASDAQ in the dot-com era was trading on 70 times forward earnings, and at the moment it's 36 times. So it feels overvalued, but it's not that overvalued. I, I, I don't know. Some of these share prices have become very stretched. You know, NVIDIA is a great example. It, it, it's added $600 billion US to its um, market capitalization in six weeks or something. That's the, that's the same as a value in, uh, the value of Tesla. So th- some things are becoming really stretched and you just got to be careful when things are stretched. Yeah, I mean, the other, Victor was making the point that these companies, all of them, are making tons of money. Yeah, yeah. Stiff loads of cash. Yeah. Free cash flow is enormous. I mean, they're just the money is just pouring into them. Yeah. Um, but it's true that the, the valuation of their shares assumes that that's going to keep not only continue but grow at the same rate that it's been growing yep. up to this point. And that might be a robust assumption, but you know the point you said, that he made that you that you repeated was that you know it, the, the multiples are nowhere near what they were in the late nineties. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But record highs 
you know, oh, oh, yeah, one my thing is think about what a record high says. In the next tw- – share markets look 12 months ahead, so a record high says the next 12 months are going to be the best period in history. Does it feel at the moment like this is the best period in history? I don't know. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> thanks for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe, everyone. Uh, I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. Send in your question to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler. I now, Eureka Report is now part of Intelligent Investor. And I'm James Thompson, the Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Financial Review. 